This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Captain Roy Keane was threatening to abandon the side. This morning, he lashed out at the Republic of Ireland's pre-tournament preparation. Training pitches with stress. It's like training on a car park. Been a troublesome 24 hours in paradise. Some personal problems, which are personal to him. The storm clouds were gathering. I just knew it. And I went for my meal at half six on the Thursday, and I was told it was a meeting at half past seven. Just prior to the meeting, Roy said it's going to go off tonight. And I knew what it was all about. I knew. He just said, look, I want to address this. I think you owe the players an apology, and boom. I think the worst take the World Cup up your ass was the last thing. And Roy went. I can't, will not tolerate uh, the, the level of abuse that was thrown at me, so I sent him home. Ireland may have left their captain behind, but his shadow had followed them to Japan. Journalists camped, if I wonder if I had to outside a hotel. I can't remember many more stressful events at the time. I'm a senior player, I'm drained, I'm shattered. How do you think the young lads are? Mick McCarthy still had the small matter of preparing his team for the World Cup, but behind McCarthy's back, efforts were being made to return Keane to the fold. Tommy Gorman from RTE contacted me and, and asked would, would, would I intervene. I'm just so devastated because we came so very close to getting Roy out here. Like, it, it shouldn't have happened. What a tragedy. But for some, with or without their captain, nothing was going to spoil their World Cup dream. It wasn't going to ruin my World Cup. Whatever, whatever's happened has happened. And my World Cup to me meant absolutely everything. It's not the Republic of Mick McCarthy. It's not the Republic of Roy Keane either. I didn't feel as though it was going to, it wasn't going to ruin my World Cup. It's something that I had, I'd wanted my whole life. Genuinely, I'd, and, and yeah, we knew that, obviously Roy was our best player. We knew that. We knew that we were going to be a lesser team without him. But I, my, my feeling at the time was, it just, we have to get on with it. You know, uh, whatever, whatever's happened has happened. Um, and my World Cup to me meant absolutely everything. To me, I wasn't going to let Anton wreck that dream of getting to a World Cup, of being on the staff, of being there, of sitting on the bench. What else could you want in football? I wasn't that good of a player, so that'll do me. The Irish team was not short of leaders and characters, even if it was missing the one world-class talent. Kitman John Fallon sums it up. Well, I think the whole thing prior to it has been lost. How good we were, uh, how many games. I think I know. I, I didn't check this factually, so someone will trip me up now. Though I think it was 24 games unbeaten up to the Iranian game. It could be 26. Like that's phenomenal. Matt Holland, former Ireland international. I think we're lucky that it happened when it did, and it wasn't. It wasn't in the immediate build-up to the game. I think if it had happened, if it had happened two days before the Cameroon game, for instance. I think that that would have been much more difficult to deal with. But at Ireland's training base in Izumo, Japan, 
The team found themselves facing relentless questioning from the global media about their missing captain. Sports photographer David Marr was watching from the sidelines. There's no question that the, the um, it, it was it was a very difficult period for the players and, and the managers to um, to try to you know train each day and then face basically the world's media. I mean, there was the, the press center where the press conference as well was absolutely jammed. Never seen so much press to uh, all of a sudden descend on the Irish team. Back to John Fallon. It's difficult to describe it. It was surreal. Um, journalists camped, for want of a better word, outside the hotel, uh, wondering what was going on at home. The days were so long. Um, but Izzy Mo, as I know, it was probably the hardest four or five days that I was involved in at any stage. Um, and couldn't wait, really, to kind of move on from that, the games to start. Um, very, very difficult time, really difficult, difficult for everybody. And with their first game days away, moves began behind the scenes to bring Roy Keane back. These attempts even reached the desk of the Taoiseach. Tommy Gorman from RTE contacted me uh, and so did um, Kennedy, you know, the Kennedy, the, um, the was he, the, Michael Kennedy. Um, uh, both of them, uh, Tommy directly, Kennedy drew somebody, I can't remember who it was, and, and asked, would, would, would I intervene? Uh, and I said what I'd always say in these circumstances, of course I would, if everybody is agreeable. You know, you, you can't get involved in these things unless both sides want you to get involved. Back in Japan, Niall Quinn was leading attempts to broker peace between Roy and Mick. Quinn had been signed up to write a column for the Irish Independent, which was ghostwritten by Vincent Hogan, and Vincent got the inside line on the behind-the-scenes negotiations. Yeah, I became very aware of what Niall was doing because I I was ghosting his column for us. And a column, you know, the context of Niall being even out there, he was just coming back from a lot of injuries. He was 35 years old. It was touch and go whether he'd even make that squad. I think it was between himself and Gary Doherty to go. Uh, so Niall went and, you know, we signed him up as a columnist, mainly because he saw a, an, such an intelligent, articulate guy and he'd give us an insight into it. We didn't expect him to have any kind of central involvement in the tournament, mm. um, that he'd be more a voice in the dressing room for McCarthy. That's what we assumed. And Suddenly, Niall was pitched centre circle of this row because he shared the same agent as Roy. Michael Kennedy was was both their agents. And um, so Niall became this figure who kind of was trying to broker peace almost without even telling McCarthy. And, and McCarthy became quite angry with Niall at one stage over this because he felt that Niall doing this was nearly undermining his authority. Back to Kevin Kilban. So Niall was always on the hotel phone. There was My phone was constantly going three, four in the morning, five in the morning. Niall was then answering the phone and things like this. And obviously he was talking to Michael Kennedy, Roy's agent and things like this. I remember, I remember Niall, Niall, I mean, Niall's, Niall and I will be very close, but Niall was so stressed with everything, so stressed. And I think he was almost I think it was getting to a stage where he was taking his eye off the ball, trying to sort everything for other people. I, I always felt that's the way where, where Niall was. Niall always had other interest, uh, other people's interest at heart, and he was trying to make the situation better for everybody. Thinking of supporters, thinking of 
you know, uh, the team thinking of how we were going to go on the pitch. And, and I think he felt that we would be better served by having Roy back in, in the squad. But Niall was just so desperate to bring peace to the thing. Um, and I could see physically, you know, I'd sit down with Niall, we'd find a quiet spot in the hotel and he'd start talking about it. And he was absolutely emotionally drained by this because, you know, Roy being Roy, um, when he heard that Niall and Stan were trying to resolve this from Japan, uh, Roy turned on them. And, uh, you know, he would have been very unkind in some of the things he said about Niall. I think one of the things he implied was that Niall was doing it for his own publicity, which was just so unfair and so far off the mark. Keane's departure was the only story in town and everybody had their opinion. As a producer for Off The Ball, Dara Whelan was tuned in to the reaction on the ground. You know, there was no middle ground here. You know, there was no oil and water mixing here. Like, you know, people said it was like the Civil War, like in the sense of without the guns, like, you know, families divided. You know, my family, it was like, I think I was the only pro Roy Keane one, you know. Friends, you know, were like, anti-Roy Keane and you'd just be arguing back and forth and and this was reflected in, in, in the airwaves as well in terms of the coverage of it. And it created this tension among journalists in which, you know, when you'd finish your work you might go for a drink and I remember particularly in Chiba and screaming matches among journalists because it was a civil war. It was, you were either on Mick's side, you were either on his side or Roy's side and never the twain should meet and like journalists screaming at each other Back to Bertie Ahern. As a Man United supporter, the amount of stupid arguments I got into, and I know everyone that got into, you know, be a far against Roy. I mean, I even know in Man United sport, I, I was far right playing for Ireland. I mean, you play for your country. I mean, and I was a bit aggrieved about that. After days of careful negotiation between Quinn McCarthy and Keane's agent, Michael Kennedy, peace appeared to be inching closer. Publicly, at least, it all hinged on the wording of Roy Keane's interview with RTE's Tommy Gorman. Would he offer an apology that could end the feud? If I felt for one second, for one second, I was a little bit out of order, I'd apologise and I'd go back and I'd love to play in the World Cup. But, but I'm 100% right. I know I am. And that's not been arrogant or cocky. The last few days, it's been hard, of course it has been. Everybody wants to play in the World Cup. But things that went on in that room, you know, people knew weren't happy with the conditions, senior players agreed with me. They could have had their say and they just sat there. And I walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. But there was no apology from Keane. If you thought that they'd take it back, that the players wanted to take back, me back. I, yeah. What do you mean if they take well, me back? If they thought that they'd love to have you in the team, that Mick McCarthy was prepared to bury the hatchet with you, that he was prepared to apologise, to meet you halfway, that the players wanted you back. What would Roy Keane, the guy who pulls really on a green jersey, know. do? I really don't know. Because I can't see it happening. I remember we were watching it. like It was literally like watching, you know, the moon landing or something like for us. It was like, because all the time the rumour was, there was rumours, he's going to apologise. He's going to apologise in the interview. McCarthy's going to welcome him back and we're all going to be okay. Niall had about, I would say, four or five different moments where he thought it was going to be resolved. Um where Michael Kennedy might have given an indication, yeah, Roy is ready to make a phone call to make an... And essentially that's what would have resolved it if, if Keane picked up the phone and rang McCarthy and said, look, I was out of order the way I spoke. And, and straight away, McCarthy had indicated. He said, if he makes that phone call, 
uh, Roy can come back. And it would have been that simple. However, in an interview with Off the Ball in 2018, McCarthy said he'd left the door open for Keane's return. But let me tell you, the, the olive branch was handed out in 2002. It was handed to Willie come back, having been sent home. So after the infamous meeting, it was then handed and out? Then it, well, it was handed out, and then it was... How is that? How was that handed out? Like, it's not a direct phone call, I presume. No, no, but it was, yes, if they, they, they opportunities there for you to come back if you want to come back, chose not to. Nothing is that simple with Roy Keane, and I think Roy, or, or Niall rather, would have felt up and down, up and down, We're, we have something here, no, we, we don't have something. And of course, it all came to a head then when Mick got the transcript of Roy's interview with Tommy Gorman. Mm and decided, well, it's not enough. He hasn't said enough. <laughs> so so I, I'd seen all kind of things. And of course, in Northern Ireland days and other places, you see rows and rows and rows and rows. But usually the reason it doesn't come to that is that somebody intervenes, somebody negotiates, somebody moderates, you know. And, it, it, you know, the reason Saipan was Saipan and the reason we're talking about it now 20 years on and it'll go on for the next 100 years is because just nobody was able to get between it. And then when the players got involved, it was a committee got between it. And, and as we all know, the last group ever to solve anything is a committee. Um, you know, so, so I think Saipan was just one big cock-up, <laughs> sadly. Well, essentially, Mick called the players to a meeting and explained to them that he felt Roy hadn't gone enough, gone far enough, and that it was now time to draw a line under it. And it was up to the players to decide. And it, Mick made it very clear to them that it was Roy or him. And it was a pretty stark situation that the players found themselves in. Back to Kevin Kilban. There was a, a vault around, or not a vault, yeah, it, was, it kind of was a vault, really. It was a vault on, look, what we're gonna do do, you know, if if we if Roy came back into the team, if Roy came back into the squad, then it, it, then obviously it was potential that Mick was going to go. I think it was there was that there was that knowledge within us that if if Roy was going to come back into the fold and back into the squad, then Mick was going to leave. And we and I think then we were having that decision amongst us. Look, what do we want to do? Do we want to go against Mick? Do we want to go against Roy? It was it was a tough a tough one for us at that time. I think our our mindset at that stage was look. We just got to get on with it. It wasn't anything about, look, we want to shaft Roy or we want to shaft Mick. It, that was never once genuinely in our thoughts. It was just, this is our time, lads. Look, we, we have to get on with it now, you know. And then we went into slapstick comedy with how it was handled by the FAI. The players arranged to release a carefully worded statement at the same time as Mick McCarthy's press conference. However, when McCarthy delayed his press conference at the last minute, the player's statement was still released to the media, making it now look like the squad were drawing a line under Roy Keane's involvement in the World Cup. I absolutely remember the shock, ash, ashen look, shocked ashen look on Niall Quinn's face as he came to a press conference that evening uh, in, in the press conference centre. And he looked like he'd seen a ghost because after all of this hours and hours of diplomacy, they had just thrown a grenade under the whole thing. I'm a senior player, I'm drained, I'm shattered. How do you think the young lads are? And I think it's reached the end now. The players, especially the younger players, can't take anymore. It had to come. 
to this. I'm just so devastated because we came so very close to getting Roy out here. And Keane would follow with his own statement, finally bringing the issue to a close. But I knew, I knew that that was the end of it. I knew there was no going back. I, I can't see any way. I mean, we, if, if you could wave a magic wand, we'd all be delighted to do so. But I think it's, it's just gone a bridge too far. I mean, we worked very diligently to, 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 to make this not, not happen. Um, I felt we had settled on Tuesday night. I used all the powers I had to speak to Michael Kennedy, who's a terrific guy, he's Roy's agent, to speak to Mick McCarthy directly at 5 to 11, five minutes before, before it happened. Uh, I thought we'd resolved it. It's, okay. it's a disappointment can, to me as much as anybody else. I think Niall was devastated. He was devastated that everything, all of the efforts, all of the sleepless nights, all of the phone calls to Michael Kennedy had essentially come to naught. I, I, think, I think Niall was physically and emotionally shattered. Even for those in the Roy Keane camp, there could only be mixed feelings. But isn't that the whole beauty of flawed heroes? You know, uncompromising heroes that we like to admire, you know, that they will go down sinking. Know, no matter what, like, you know, they will stand on their principles. But to be able to do that, you know, in, light, in TV interview with Tommy Gorman, apologize, what should I apologize for? You know, you're kind of going, oh, good man. But then at the bottom of your heart, you're going, oh, what could have been? But I, I don't think it was, they need a Bertie Hearn to get involved, but they did need, they did need um, a, a cool head. And like some of the players now might feel that they were very cool heads, but like it, it shouldn't have happened. To, 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 to just think of it, to allow one of the best players in the world playing with a country that has limited, limited great players. What a tragedy. While off the field preparations have been a complete disaster, on the pitch there was energy and real purpose to their training. Back to John Fallon. I think with a few days there and getting through that, then it started to galvanise people and then we just made the best of it. And I think a lot of the players, it was like that was their release, just get out there. And the training sessions, there was a real energy to the training sessions on the mainland. There was a real physicality to their matches. Um, it was like that's where they got it out of their systems. Mm. Just get out in the foot, on the field and, and do what they're good at. I can't say this enough times, that bunch of players, maybe I've seen the best, maybe the ones before were the best, but as people and as a bunch and as a, a collective, they were brilliant lads. No, I mean, it, it's difficult to say it helps because you're losing someone who's, who's, who's such a good player. But I think, I think then it was a case of, look, it's happened. We have to get on with it. And, and, and I guess, you know, uh, Gary Kelly made light of it. You know, you put, put Roy, on, I think, as a, as a mannequin um, uh, on his seat where he would normally be on the bus. And, and you know, put a keen shirt on, and, and just just tried to make light of the situation, I guess. And, and I suppose in some ways it probably does bring you know bring you a little bit um, closer because they often say in adversity you, you know it, it, it can bring you a bit closer. And, and you know it was in adverse times, no doubt about that. We should win. Good night, town. Absolutely unbelievable. We're out of dinner tonight. Only one keno. The other ones at home. I think the one thing that really stands out is coming into that stadium. It's the most beautiful stadium I think I've ever seen, Big Swan in Nagata. And you're kind of wondering, what will the supporters' relationship with this team be now? Um, because Keane was this superstar. And without Keane, and because of the innuendo and 
the narrative that had gone home, the players turned on Keane and they closed the doors to him coming back. You kind of wondered, was there going to be some kind of equivocation from supporters, what the numbers were going to be like, but the amount of support the team had in Nagata that day, and the, the, the scale of the support, the sound of the support, the, the unequivocal nature of that support, I think all of the players felt it. That reaction from the fans had certainly been playing on Mick McCarthy's mind, as he recently told Virgin Media. It was really tough. I didn't know how anybody felt about it. There, was, there were so many conflicting emotions and people's opinions. And, it, and every day it was the same. Every day it was about, you know, the incident all the way through, uh, throughout the World Cup. I enjoyed it. I think I'd have enjoyed it a lot more, it being different. But I remember going out for the uh, Cameroon game and uh, as I walked out on the pitch, I wasn't sure what the reaction I was getting. So I, I kind of, I stayed away. And then the lads came out and they got a great applause, you know. So I did, I felt um, a little bit on my own, I have to be honest. But this was the moment many in the squad had waited a lifetime for. Well, it's not one of my career highlights, it is the absolute career highlight. It's, it was the absolute ultimate for me. Um, going back to maybe when I was a kid growing up, just watching the team in, in Italy in 90 and uh, maybe the Euros in 88, but particularly in Italy 90, um, that is the ultimate. I, you know, I can always say that I played in the World Cup and that's, uh, that, that, that means a lot to me. It's very, very special to me, yeah. And you know, once they conceded that goal against Cameroon, they played really well, really well. And they more than deserved the draw, with Matty Holland getting the equaliser. And it was like a huge weight off their shoulders. You could tell it in all of the players. They were, they were just, thank God, with the, the, the atmosphere, because if they'd been badly beaten, and you know, when you concede a goal like they did, if that ended up a 3-0 Cameroon win, you knew what the story was going to be back home. For Holland, it was a dream come true and a decisive moment of the tournament for Ireland. Um, I remember the cross being not, not the best cross from Kev, headed out and coming onto it and just thinking that that's sitting up perfectly for me. You know, I, 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 all I needed was to get a good contact on it. I didn't have to put my laces through it because the ball was coming back to me so the, the, there was pace on the ball coming into it. All I had to do was get a good connection. Um, and it was something that, uh, uh, I mean, from a kid growing up, practice volleys all the time. Practice hitting volleys against the, my mum's wall. So many, and smashed so many photo frames. And so all those years of practice, you know, you feel as though it's come down to that one moment, if you like. And I just thought, get a good contact. And luckily I did. Scored and then for, for sort of five, 10 seconds, you, you lose yourself and think, right, what we're doing and where I've just yeah I've just scored wow and I've ran around the back of the goal and then I, I ran back the other way because I remember before the game I'd seen my wife and my kids and my dad were in the stand that side of the goal the other side of the goal but I'd run off the other way so I then had to try and make my way back behind the goal to go and try and see them um, but yeah it's, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a, an amazing moment Having his wife his kids and his father in the stadium made it all the more special for the Irish midfielder you know, and, and particularly my dad as well, because he, he, he's, he's sadly not with us now, but he he, um, he, he was such a big part of, of me becoming a footballer in the first place, with all the time, the effort, the, the, you know, the travelling to games, all that sort of stuff. It, it, 
for him then to be able to witness it and to be there was 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 extra special. But yeah, it was you know it was a, it was a great moment. I think. Ireland finished the game strongly, taking a valuable point against Cameroon and leaving Saipan in the rear view mirror for now. But I think once we got to 60 minutes, I felt stronger than them. I felt as though that we were the only team that were going to go on and win that game. It was one, it was going to be a draw or a win for us either way. Fair had gone then, first game was over, we're up and running. Four days later, Ireland pulled off another one-all draw in dramatic fashion with Niall Quinn flicking the ball onto Robbie Keane to score the equaliser against Germany deep into injury time. Second half, forward it goes again by Kinsler. Quinn heads on, oh surely this time for Keane! And Ireland do it! Robbie Keane! In the second minute of stoppage time has scored... Of all of the Irish goals I've ever witnessed being scored, that was the one where I lost the plot. I, I just thought... This is magnificent against Germany in the 92nd minute. And Niall Quinn, 35-year-old Niall Quinn, who was a busted flush as an international player, and he gets his head to this ball, and Robbie Keane tucks it away. To me, even, even thinking about it now sends a shiver down my spine. I, I just thought it was the, this magical moment. And there and then, it was a successful World Cup for this group. Back to David Marr. Get the pictures of him celebrating in that corner um, and the celebration of the team on the pitch after getting that point against Germany. It, was, it seemed to be like a relief after all that had happened in Saipan and all the, all the tension and everything else to go and get a huge result against a really quality German team. Yeah, the Roy Keane story was over um, because it was now about an Irish team that was punching above its weight, basically. A 3-0 win over Saudi Arabia guaranteed Ireland's place in the knockouts and a trip to Seoul to face Spain. And once again, there was last-minute drama from Robbie Keane. This time, Quinn winning the penalty and Keane dispatching it to send the game to extra time. But there will be no breakthrough and there will be no repeat of the 1990 penalty heroics. Matt Holland and Kevin Kilban were both left heartbroken. Yeah, that was that was the lowest of the low for me. I mean, I, me personally, obviously being being one of those that missed the penalty, um, went to my room, tears, home because by that time my family had gone home. I think they only watched the first two games before they went back. Um, I had two young kids, so they were they were back, and um, I, I was yeah in, in my room just in tears to them. And then um, the players were going out to to sort of mark the end of the. The tournament, and, and I got a knock on the door off Kevin Kilban, who, who said, "What are you doing?" I said, well, "I'm just, I'm going to stay here. I can't, you know, I can't really think about going out." So, for it to go the way that it went for us two, I felt his pain. I felt exactly what he was feeling after that that penalty shootout, um, and I just, I just felt as though that there was no way that he was going to stay in that hotel on his own. And actually, he said, "Like, look, come on, we've got a guy. We've got, we, you know, you need to sort of switch off from it." Let's go and have a good time. It's happened. We're going to have a few beers. We'll have a good evening. And, and I'll forever be grateful for that, for that knock on the door. While success on the pitch had brought a temporary halt to the Saipan debate, there was always a feeling that the Roy Keane issue hadn't fully gone away. With any bit of luck at all, and certainly with Roy, um, we would have been in the quarter-final. And God knows when you get to the quarter-final, you're allowed to dream where you, you might get. I dream about what we could have done if we'd have beat Spain, which we would have with him. 
you know, the story has since changed that we, you know, looking back now, we, we could have won that World Cup now, you know? <laughs> like, no, I, I think, I think Roy Keane was such a huge figure that it was always going to be, you know, a story about, well, is he going to play for Ireland again? And if he's going to play for Ireland again, how does he resolve his differences with McCarthy? The only way that McCarthy could stay in that job was resolve his differences with Roy Keane. And really, that wasn't going to happen. Well, when Mick was there, I don't think Roy was ever come back. Let's, not, let's call it a spade, a spade. And then you go on your first qualifier and Russia score four against you in Moscow. Um, that narrative was never going to stay away. It was always going to come back because Roy Keane was too big a figure, too good a footballer, still too good a footballer um, for it not to come back. But I would say Mick probably regrets that he didn't leave immediately after coming home from Korea because it would have been a kind of a, you know, a really kind of heroic way to leave, you know, that he got the team together, gelled them together. You're beaten on penalties by a great Spanish team in the, in the last 16 you were coming home as heroes. Mm. Um, instead, you know, he ended up uh, facing dogs abuse in, in Lansdowne Road. There was a toxic atmosphere that, were built, that was building then, and I don't think the team, honestly, probably have never recovered from that. After losing 4-2 in Moscow, McCarthy's team were beaten 2-1 by Switzerland, all but ending hopes of qualifying for Euro 2004. The crowd, you could, it started torn then, and maybe I had torn before that, I don't know. But, uh, it, it was over, really. To announce that Mick McCarthy has tendered his resignation today after almost seven years as manager of the Irish team. And I'd like to take this opportunity to wish Mick and Dean uh, the very best in the future. Thanks, man. Well done, and thanks for everything. Within five months of leaving for Saipan, Ireland had lost both their manager and their captain. 20 years on from the fallout between Keane and McCarthy, we're still feeling the impact. Daniel MacDonald is the current Irish independent soccer correspondent, and although he didn't cover Saipan, he's been dealing with the fallout ever since. I always used to feel like when I, because I came along a couple of years later, that with Saipan, it was almost a sense of, well, you know, you weren't there, man. You know, it's like the Vietnam thing. You weren't there, you wouldn't understand. In some respects, um, and in other ways, it's a sense of, yeah, I mean, it is a sort of a seminal moment in, in Irish football history that you can talk about not wanting to talk about it, um, but it is remarkably relevant to a lot of what happened in the, in the subsequent years. Saipan is a word that relates to sort of a conflict, you know, and something that happened. But 2002, to me, is the last time Ireland were in a World Cup. And two decades on, it's a word that generates a sense of what if. You know, I think if if Roy was around for, the, for that World Cup, I think we would have probably, um, we probably would have, you know, done something special at that World Cup. I do feel that. But what I think has happened in the in the twenty years since, um, I think maybe the, the there was a very strong Roy Keane lobby at the time, that I think is probably now split between people who are sort of they're sort of the fundamentalist wing of the Roy Keane fan club that I don't think their their view on what happened will ever change. But I do think there's also 
um, a section of the Roy Keane backers at the time who maybe have mellowed over time. Um, their view has mellowed or maybe they realise now in hindsight that the sort of the uncompromising Roy Keane is right about everything worldview has probably been eroded a bit by what's happened um, to Roy Keane in the intervening period and maybe some of his struggles and and travails in the world of management um, and even punditry and even his view towards certain episodes that you actually realise that the Roy Keane is flawed. Um, he isn't always right. Well, it's funny, my perception of Keane has changed. Um, I think he's become a character of himself. I think he's become many things that he said he never would be, i.e. a media hack, a talking, talking pundit head. Um, he just rabbits on with the same things, you know. It had a lasting impact on McCarthy too. And he said, <laughs> shortly after, he said, you know, his life father was from Tulla, County Waterford. He said, when I'm 80 walking down the streets of Tulla with a walking stick, someone said, there's that bee that sent home Roy Kane. And he said, that's what I'll be known as, and it's true. A lot has changed for both of them since the World Cup in 2002. But Keane and McCarthy will forever live in the shadows of Saipan. Shadows of Saipan was produced by myself, Kieran Lennon, Shane Brennan and Mary Carroll. Recorded by John Smith and Gavin Hennessy. Sound design by Graeme Davidson. Additional storyboarding by Dara Whelan. Archive clips from independent.ie, Associated Press, Virgin Media Sport, RTE Primetime, RTE News, Off the Ball on News Talk. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.